All I remember from the the, the the thing I really remember from those days was fear. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I in my dad's house, and I've got a cousin. We talk about it, and they, he says we always used to notice when we came to your house, mm-hmm. you were never relaxed. Mm. You were never. And he said, he said if your dad would call your name, he said your whole body language would change. He said even as kids they would notice it. How do you feel now? How do you feel now is a podcast that brings people together with similar life stories to talk about their shared experiences, their histories, and the way that has impacted on their lives and who they have become today. We're going to have a conversation about how they have or haven't reconciled with their past and how they cope by living with it in their present. This is a safe space for us to share and be vulnerable with each other, having survived to tell the tale, inspired by my memoir, Little Big Man. Today, I will be in conversation with Gamal Tarawa, otherwise known as G. G is an ex-police officer, and in his short film, The Black Cop, sponsored by The Guardian, G shares his experience of being farmed as a young boy, a term used to describe private fostering arrangements by African parents which was a common practice during the 50s through to the 70s. He also talks about being the first to serve on the police force as an openly gay black man. We are going to have an honest, candid conversation about our journeys through various foster homes, and we're going to talk about our past traumas, our hopes, and who we have become today as men. Wow, I can't believe it. Here we are on episode four. Now, I just got to touch on this before we go into episode four with my next wonderful guest. It was such an honor and a pleasure and a privilege to talk with Ben Ashcroft, the author of 51 Moves in um, episode three. How powerful, honestly, powerful. Um, We got deep into our own journeys and what we had gone through and how that affected us in our lives today. Um, and, you know, honestly, his book is amazing. So if you get a chance to have a read of his book, honestly, I would highly recommend it. Right now in front of me, I have the wonderful Gamal Tarawa, who we call G, who's come to join me today, an ex-Black police officer and also the first Black gay police officer to come out. Is that right, brother? Have I got that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Among the many things I've done in my life, yeah. Among the many things, you know, and you know what? Firstly, I want to get into the nuts and bolts of how we actually met, because we met at the um, Hachet's uh, building, the, the, the mm. publishing building, and we were just in the lobby, weren't we? We you were know? just, um, and we just, well, two guys just happened to have a conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, yeah. I remember as I came out of Blackfriars, I was walking along and I, I, I think I walked past you and we both, because I acknowledge you had a flap cap on, and I think I had a flap cap on. And I was thinking, ah, oh, to myself, it's flap cap, you know. Mm. And then um, I've gone past you, only for you to enter the building all around the same time. And then we just went straight into conversation, man. Um, yeah. So tell me about, because you're, you're, you're about to write a book as well. Is that Yeah, right? I'm in the process of doing my biography. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, which came, I mean, I've been trying to do it for a while, but it came off the back of, uh, I've had a great year. Mm-hmm. In, I won a BAFTA for my short film, mm-hmm. Black Cop, which is on YouTube. Um, and I also won the National Diversity Awards Positive Role Model of the Year for Gender. Wow. So, and I had my portrait painted as well, which is now hanging in the gallery. So it was, it's been an incredible, incredible year. Well, firstly, let me say congratulations to you, brother. Obviously, mm. more power to you. Is that the award I'm seeing sitting in behind you? Might be. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely, mate. Mm. Honestly, more power to mm. you and congratulations. Thank Tell you. Tell me more about, you know, because, you know, what was nice was when, when we actually met and we had that mm. conversation, I was like, you know what, I, I want to link with this guy. I want to talk. I want to get to know you and, and, and more, find out more about you. And you sent me the link to your film. And I watched it on YouTube and I was absolutely blown away, brother, blown away by your journey, you know, because you went through the care system like myself. 
uh, it, although the circumstances were different, nonetheless, you went through it, you know, and you've come out, you joined the police force. Well, no, there was a chapter between. That Tell me, all right, I'll film. let you explain. Go for yeah. it. Go yeah, for but, it. Well, in, in a short sort thing, I mean, I, I started off my life as being fostered. Mm. So I was fostered from when I was about a week, two weeks old until mm. I was about eight by mm -hmm. a white foster family in a little village in Kent. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a thing around then, which was done up until the eighties called farming in Nigeria. Yes. Communities. That's yeah. right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people were farmed out to white families while their parents sort of like got themselves settled etc yeah and then so what about that farming because we're gonna because there's a film that's out i don't know if you've seen yeah. it for farming yeah yeah and i've actually worked with the writer director believe it or not that what 30 odd years ago um mm. we did a we did a film together called the voyage or the last voyage something like that and I remember him from way back when, you know, and he's done well, you know, to write this, you know, yeah. this film. And this film came out 2018, actually. Yeah, yeah. was it long ago as that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 2018. Yeah, I remember going to see the premiere at the National yeah. Film Festival. But it's, it's a powerful, powerful film about this young boy who ends up basically joining the National Front and going against his own people. Tell mm -hmm. us more about the farming Experience. I mean, it's interesting because that film, I remember going to see that film. Yeah. And for me, it felt like somebody would stolen my story. Right. Really? Because there was so much of it I resonated with. Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, like I say, if you look at the last, the last, um, the credits, he puts up the faces of so many people who were farmed out. Yeah. And, you know, farming came from, there's an African proverb that you may have heard. It takes a village to raise a child. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Now that is not only a problem; it's it's a way of life, right? And right. I'm going to speak about Nigeria. I know Ghana, and I'm speaking yeah. about Nigeria in particular. Please do, brother. Please yeah. do. And you know, you have family compounds, and mm. parents go to, and you, it's not uncommon for you to go and stay with Uncle So and So or Auntie mm. So and So or this person. The kids are, you know, farmed out basically to go yeah. and stay, because it's like everybody has a collective responsibility. I get that bringing up the children. So when that. when my parents' generation came over here, my father's generation came over here, they mm -hmm. didn't have that village mm -hmm. to help them raise the child. Right? Yeah. So what they did is this private a thing called private fostering. Private raising, fostering, yeah. Yeah. Sort of stepped into that space. Mm. So mm -hmm. a lot of us were given up to white foster parents. Right. <laughs> The thing is, like, because I watched that film recently, and yeah. I was I was actually invited to a, to do a talk around that film. Mm. Um, and what came up for me, being on the other side, coming from a Jamaican family, a schizophrenic mum, yeah. who fought tooth and nail to keep me mm. and to keep my siblings. Right. So here's this woman who's mentally ill, and when the police kick off her door to take us away. Because she really couldn't cope, she fought to keep to keep us. So when I watched this film and I saw that these parents were willingly handing over their children, I was a bit discombobulating. Hold on a minute. Firstly, I get it. All right, I get the whole. It takes a village to raise a child. I understand that, mm. but I'm thinking of the village as in your village and your people. Yeah, yeah. To go to a completely different culture. Yeah. Right. Because another one of the things that came to my mind, I was thinking, well, why didn't they send the kids back to Africa so that they can be with the grandparents? You see, you know. Oh, God, uh, that, that, that opens Keeping up it. a can of worms. Holy <laughs> kind of worms. That's what we're uh, here for. Because, brother. you know, when, when people say, oh, why don't you send, for example, the phrase, send them home. Right? Mm. And I look at that and say, no, it's our parents' home. It's not our home. Mm hmm. Our home is here. This is where we grow up. This no, no. So we know. If, if we rewind the tape a minute, because you was fostered at three, how old are you? Two weeks, two weeks old. Two weeks old. So that's very, that's a, a baby. Yeah. So in the film, it's the same thing. I think he was six weeks old. Yeah. So immediately one begs the question, why wouldn't the parents, you know, 
um, allow the child to be raised by the grandparents, wherever the grandparents are, if yeah. if it is the the whole village. This, is, this was just the way. This is just the way it happened. This was this is what it is. Like I said, it was um, the private fostering arrangements just came in. If you YouTube this, there's loads of stuff on it online. I've read a lot since yeah. since I was asked yeah. to speak. I've read yeah. tons of it, and it wasn't you know it is it's not something. It's almost like it's somewhere where the kids are being taken care of while I focus on my career. Yeah, but then you, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that yeah, was yeah. that was meant to be the objective. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then sadly, we have these stories. So tell us. Yeah, and some of the stories, what what it did for some of the people, and mm. and I I run a group helping people who are in this situation. Mm-hmm. It 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 messed up some people. Some people have profoundly messed up their sense of identity. Yeah, um, because you know you're, you're you're in this space where you're. I mean, to give it even context to mind, when I was with my foster parents, I was called Vic. Right. Right. So, they, so, so they I was Vic. You, That's who I grew they, up to be. So they gave you a complete new name. Even I though had a completely different name. name. Yeah, and this even was a name that they agreed with my parents, right? Uh, wow. For whatever reason. Wow. Um, and so for the first eight years, I am Vic. So your parents agreed to this as well, even though they as named. As far as I'm aware, Daniel. yeah. Right. As far as I'm aware, so I was Victor with my foster parents' surname. That's what mm-hmm. I wrote in all my books and everything like that. Right. And, and then and, overnight, mm-hmm. when I was about seven, eight years old, mm. uh, my dad suddenly turned up and decided he wanted to take me back to London. I remember that part in your film. Yeah. So by this time, he, he and my mum had bought a house. Yeah. Uh, and they had two daughters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then suddenly I'm taken to this house. Mm-hmm. And overnight, I went from being Victor to now I'm Gamal. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it wasn't just the name changed, the whole culture changed, yeah. the food changed. I remember, I remember that part in your film because you said that was the first time you've seen a black man. Yeah. In the flesh. In the flesh, sitting mm. in your living room. And I tell you, firstly, I want to say well done mm. for making that film. And people have to watch it. People have to watch this. I swear to you, you have to watch this. I was blown away. And I'm so glad that I managed that. We, we're having this conversation. I know you've been busy and you, you know, I've been hunting you down. Like, come on, G, come on, when you're free, when you're free. Mm. But now going back to that, that was the first time that you as a black man, or sorry, or as, sorry, as a young black boy, had seen a black man in yeah. the flesh, yeah. which was your dad. Mm. It was your dad. Powerful. So they, they pick you up and they take you home. Mm. So I've gone from this all-white village in Kent mm-hmm. to this totally black environment in Halsden. Wow. Right? And I remember going to school thinking, I don't belong here. Mm. Um, and, that, and that's, I think that's the theme that's run through my life, mm. right? Is finding that place where you belong. Mm. Uh, and, and I don't and I know if you, you relate to that with... I was going to say, yeah. you know, again, because I'm so glad to, to be talking to you. I can relate to that. Because I was moved around so many times and I was split up from my siblings, yeah, from an early age, like nine or whatever it was. And since then, as I talk about it in my book, Little Big Man, since then, I feel like I don't really belong anywhere because what happened was my siblings stayed together and they bonded, yeah, because they'd never been apart. So even when I rejoined them as a teenager, the bond that I had missed out on, even to this day, we're big people now, I'm not 52 next week, actually. Even to this day, of course they love me and I love them and we, we, you know what I mean, we are combined, we are united. But the bond they have is different to the bond I have. And yes. I see it. And it's, I can't pull it into the word, into words. It's not tangible. It's just the feeling. And in the book, I talk about, for me, I'm, my story is not just about me being a young black boy or growing up in Hackney. Yeah. For me, my story is a universal story of love, belonging, yeah. and family. Yeah. And it's that yearn for belonging that, I, that is the thread throughout this book of 
this young kid who's trying to find his way back home. And when I, when I say back home, more within my heart and my head than that tangible home, if that makes sense. Well, I was going to ask you, that was going to be my next question for you. Is that, have you found home? You know what? Yes, I have. And what I told you. What does it feel like? Tell me, hey, go on. Fantastic question. And this is why I knew me and you was going to reason good. I'll tell you why, my brother. The amount of work I've done on myself, right, through roots of therapy, um, written work, the 12 steps in my recovery, I had to almost, and I've used this analogy before, peel back the onion layer to get to the core for me to understand what happened to little Stanley to make peace with my past. And I have to almost address that every day because the trauma, you know, especially them first seven years of a child's life mm. is so imperative. It's, it, mm. it creates the, 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 the hallmark. Yeah, the imprint period. It's the imprint. Yeah, they call and it the imprint I, period. Yeah. I don't think we ever get over it. I think what I've, my experience is, I've learned how to live with it and to make peace with it. I can never erase that. Like, you know, like you've got the, the whiteboard or whatever and you can erase. I could never erase that. That would always be part of my DNA. All I can do is make peace with it, learn from it, acknowledge it, embrace it for what it is. And I talked about this with Ben, parent my inner child. Mm. little Stanley I've got to be there for him now mm. I'm a father to my little child I'm a mother to my little child my inner child mm. so little Stanley I've got to make sure his needs are met and that he's heard because he wasn't heard in them early days do you know what I mean and I see you nodding your head can you relate to that yeah yeah no I mean that's that's the thing and, and it's good that you've you've been able to go on that journey because not a lot of people are blessed enough to go on that journey mm. um and and if you don't go down and learn how to parent your inner child, mm. your inner child will drag you down. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. And, you know, and if you don't heal it, the pain that it has will destroy mm. you. Mm. And so what was your process? Because I see as I was talking, it's, it was it's, not it's, in it, There is so many, so many things that I've done over the years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I went through uh, a lot of period of resentment and anger. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, I, I got to, you know, and I, did, I didn't realize how self-destructive that anger was, mm-hmm. how self-destructive blame can be, mm. how self-destructive defensiveness can be. Mm-hmm. Um, because all of those things disempower you. Yeah. They disempower and and they eat away at you. There's there's a saying that says, you know, um, it's like drinking poison, expecting other people to die. Exactly, and it's like digging. You you, you if you've got a resentment, you dig one grave for that person, but you need to dig one for yourself. Another grave for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, um, yeah. and you know what? Um, you know, going back to what you shared about seeing your dad for the first time, seeing a black man Mm. for the first time, then being removed from the village to Harlesden, one of the blackest areas in London you could have, you could get, you know, what was it like for you now having to transition into, you know? It was tough. It was tough. Um, Because like I said, you know, everything I'd been brought up to, up to that point to believe or think or feel literally it wasn't a transition it was overnight Mm. I was expected to understand a whole new set of rules I mean I remember for example I came home from school once Mm -hmm. early in days and I walked into the living room and there was a packet of biscuits on the table and I took a biscuit and I sat down and I put the tv on to watch cartoons Mm mm-hmm Right. About half an hour or so later, my dad walked in. Mm. Who took the biscuit? And I'm like, I did. Did you ask anybody? And I'm looking like I've never nobody's ever told me I have to ask someone to take a biscuit. 
different culture, yeah. Yeah. And then suddenly it was like, you stole it. Whoa. And I was slapped. Whoa. And who told you you could put on the TV? Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there thinking, I don't know what's going on here. Mm. I don't know the rules. I don't know how to connect. Mm. I don't know what, you know, and my dad's response to that <sighs> was, it wasn't his response, wasn't, well, I'm going to teach you. His response is, well, I will beat you until you do know the rules. Mm. It, there was almost like this expectation that you must Not know true. the rules. Yeah. 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 I mean, give another example, eye contact. Mm-hmm. My foster parents brought me up. Look at me when I'm talking to you. Yeah. That was my conditioning. That's the way I'd been taught. If somebody talks to me, you look at them because that's the polite, respectful thing yeah. to do. Yeah. Right. My dad would call me and I'd turn around and say, yes, dad. And I'd look at him and suddenly I'd get this slap around the face. And I'm like, what? I don't even know what I've done. Why? I'm... I've, I, I, all I said is, yes, dad. Mm. Yeah? And then suddenly I get this. And then I find out somewhere along the line. It comes in that in my dad's culture, mm-hmm. children do not look adults in the eye. It's disrespectful. Aye, aye, aye. Right? How, so how, then go on. I learn to look down. Yes. Right? And not look at them. You know, you know, you know, you, if you looked at my dad, it would be, so you think you're a man now. Mm. And then I now go to school. Mm-hmm. The teacher's talking to me. Mm. I look down. Right. Right. Teachers, European, Western, British mm-hmm. teacher writes on my school report mm-hmm. because the teacher has a different cultural conditioning. Mm. This boy does not listen. He doesn't pay attention. Aye. And then who reads that report? Daddy. And that kind of reinforces again yeah. what he thinks about me. Aye. Right? So he, he my dad would beat me. And my dad was a very. He was a brutal man. Mm. But he would beat me with rubber hoses, with bits of wood, mm. electric cables. He'd tie me up. Right. Uh, he'd do this thing. He had one of these things that for the next 30 days, you are not eating in this house. He'd give me ex- uh, punishments like a, there's a punishment called carry the block. Mm. Right? Where it'd be a block of wood. It was a yeah. big block of wood. And I'd have to stand and hold it above my head for three hours every night. Um, the other thing they had a a thing called pick pin or stoop down if you had any Nigerian people who are listening to this they'll probably laugh when they hear that Mm -hmm. it was a punishment where you had to sort of balance on one finger and one leg wow 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 and and I'd have to do it in front of the TV yeah so my dad would sit on the sofa me in front of him there's the TV so he could watch the TV and watch me at the same time yeah yeah I mean Uh, and then social services got involved I remember the first time Mm -hmm. They got involved. They had beaten me, beaten me badly, and I had bruises mm-hmm. everywhere. And I got to school, and they looked at me, and they sent me to see the nurse. Mm-hmm. And the nurse looked me up and down and said, well, what happened to you? Mm-hmm. And I just said, I fell down the stairs. And she said, wait here. Next thing I know, they got this doctor in looking at me, examining me. Mm-hmm. And then the doctor said, how many times did you fall down the stairs? And I looked at him, and, and he just turned and said, you've been beaten. These are beating marks and there were bruises all over my body. Mm. Uh, and I was taken that night into a, into a hospital, first of all, and then taken to a foster home, another foster home. Mm. Uh, and then began the journey where I say social services practically became part of the family. I, um, and I was taken in and out of care homes, back to my parents, back to care homes back to my parents and it was like you know my schooling suffered because I never stayed in school um and all I remember from the the, the, the thing that I really remember from those days was fear uh, I in my dad's house and I've got a cousin we talk about it and they, he says we always used to notice when we came to your house mm-hmm. you were never relaxed you were never and he said he said if your dad would call your name he said your whole body language would change he said, even as kids, they would notice it. Uh, you know, there was just fear. That's uh, and then when I got to 16, uh, my dad had a stroke. And I remember the night that it happened. And it happened, he, he went out to a party or somewhere. And then about three o'clock in the morning, my mom came in and woke me up and said, daddy's in hospital, he's had a stroke. Mm. And all I remember thinking was, I hope he dies. 
I remember mm. thinking, I hope it, and I was sitting there thinking, I was literally praying for him to die. So that if he dies, I will never get hit again. My life would be changed. My life would be happy. He didn't die, but he came home and he was disabled all down his left side because of the stroke. Uh, so he couldn't control me anymore. Oh, God. Mm. And then he came up with a plan. And he told me when I was, yeah, I was just turned 16. Mm-hmm. He said, look, there's a family reunion taking place in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. He said, I want you to go there because I can't travel. So I need you to go and represent me. You'll go for Christmas and you'll be back by the new year. Whoa. And I'm like, okay, because I just wanted to go on a plane. <laughs> just get away. Plane. <laughs> it was just a plane. I'd just never been on a plane. You know, planes were fascinating. <laughs> I'm going on a plane. And I remember that I flowed and I got to Nigeria. And it got to about four weeks. And I said to my uncle, when am I going back? Mm. And my uncle laughed. And he said, you're not going back. You're staying here. No. The next night, I was woken up in the middle of the night, told to pack my bags. And I was taken on the back of a lorry filled with yams into this village in the middle of nowhere. Nowhere. There was no running water, no electricity. It was just like the most remote African village you could think of. Um, and I was put there to be a servant to one of my dad's old school friends. Uh, I managed to escape from there, got back to Lagos. Mm-hmm. After a few, about eight months a year or so, I escaped. I got back to Lagos. And I remember arriving in Lagos and thinking, I don't know where I'm going. I know nothing about Lagos. I've got no map. I don't know where to begin. I don't know who to turn to. And that night I saw some people sleeping under a bridge. So I went over and I thought, okay, I'll stay with them tonight. And tomorrow, I'll figure something out. I lived under that bridge for about eight, nine months. I was a homeless child on Lagos. Under that bridge, I saw, you know, I eventually sold everything I had. So I had nothing but the clothes on my back. And you were 16 at the time. And I was 16 going on 17. Wow. Yeah. And... My day consisted of just waking up every morning, going out. I say waking up like I stepped out of bed. It was just whatever corner of the bridge you could find to sleep. Yeah, yeah, totally. And then you just go out and you just spend the day begging. And I always tell around people say, you ever had a point in your life mm-hmm. where you give up hope? There is no hope. You can't see a way out. I, you know, and um, mate, firstly, thank you for sh- That's a power. I'm looking forward to reading your book. And that's going to be a powerful book. I thought I had it back, <laughs> you know. Um, well, it, but the thing is, Stanley, it's not a competition. No, of course it's not a competition. But, you know, what I'm saying is, firstly, we all have our stories to share, yeah. right? When I first, on the first episode, Ronnie Archer Morgan, powerful story, powerful. Again, a powerful book when you read that book, you know? And it's relating to the experience of trauma, mm-hmm. the experience of, of, you know, being brutalized mm. by the people we love. Mm. Or the people that are supposed to love us. Or the people supposed to love us. But innately, what we kind of touched on was, because we both had schizophrenic mothers who did some horrendous things to us. You know, my mom used to beat me with the, with the, the, the curtain rod. You pull out the curtain rod and you hear that whip through the ear. Mum used to have a belt hanging up on the side. She called it Roots. Movie Roots. And when you got in trouble or whatever, she said, go fetch Roots. Mm. And I can tell you that was the longest walk. Have you you seen Richard Pryor? Right? I've I've seen, I love Richard Pryor. I've seen when he talks about his dad used to send him that switch. 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 I mean, I sat there, right? And I remember watching that thing. I know that walk. (laughs) I know that walk. I know that walk. So when mum used to say, go fetch roots, me being a rebel and being who I am, I will find roots and I will throw roots under the kitchen table or throw roots under the bed or throw roots. Then I go back to mum. Mom, I, I can't find roots. Bing, bang, boom, bing, bang, boom. You better go find roots now. Don't let me come out. Boop, boop, boop. Mm. And I go find roots because I'm like, well, it's, do you know what I mean? Less of the evil, at least I yeah. know. And then my mom had this thing where she say, stretch out your hand. Yes, yes. Stretch out yeah. your hand. Yeah. I would give the hand 
and you like you, you keep it still. Don't make me miss you know mm. it's true. And I would stretch it and I whack. My mom used to use a wooden right? spoon for that. Uh now and then the thing is, she would then say, "Give me the other hand." Mm. And then you get on the other hand. Then you think it done and say, "Well, give me back the other hand that I did on the first place." And I also can relate to don't stand in the corner on one on one foot. Mm. Your hands on your head, and I would have to balance. Do you know what I mean? I don't know mm. where they get. I don't know where they come up with these. <laughs> I know. I don't know the, where the, they come up the, with these. The school of sadism. <laughs> honestly. You know, looking back and then talking with you, and this is why I'm again. I must say, thank you so much for for being in conversation with me, mm. and thank you for your honesty and transparency and openness, mm. because it takes a lot of courage to share this stuff. For yeah. years, I kept quiet. Right? Yeah. yeah. For years, I kept quiet. Mm. Um, as you know, I work as an actor. I'm in that that industry, and and one of the things that came up for me was I didn't want to anyone to know my story in case they used it against me or and doors closed is why I kept quiet for the longest time. But now ever since I wrote the book and it's, you know, it's been out and friends and family have heard people have just been, it's been nonstop. You know, everyone now is, 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 is opening up. Also we're living in an era where it's acceptable. It's okay. It's not a taboo anymore hmm. to even have a therapist or to talk about hmm. feelings you know, men cry. We've been mm. crying for years, for decades. Mm. How you mean? You know what I mean? But no one ain't been talking about it, right? And you know, the spiritual path. Do you know what I mean? Looking at oneself. You know, yoga. Looking at holistic lifestyles. Do you know what I mean? All this stuff. It's it's all apt for for, for the era we're living in. Do you know what I mean? And and one of the reasons why I wrote my book, and one of the reasons I'm doing this this podcast is to be able to talk about this, especially as men, from your man, we can, and you've gone through some stuff, we mm. can have this conversation as men. We can share our innermost as men and, and what we've gone through. And what you've just shared with me, man, how traumatic, how traumatic to have gone through that, yet come out and become a black police officer. Tell me about this transition, because meanwhile, I know the little middle part. How did you go from Nigeria, Lagos, and end up being in the, the metropolitan? I don't think we've got enough time to go into it fully, man. We've got a little time, man. Don't worry, sir. Come. Let's just say, let's just say mm. I have been fortunate enough to have miracles happen in my life. A miracle got me from Nigeria to here. Mm. Right? And I came back to the UK in 87. Mm-hmm. When I came back, it was interesting because I left here as a kid and I came back as a young man. And the world I'd left mm-hmm. was completely gone. Uh, and when I say gone, even things like I wanted to go to my old school, it had been demolished. Uh, my old primary school was now another school under a different name. You know, and I came back and I wanted to see, I, want, I had this yearning to see the things I... I missed when I was getting the shops I knew had closed down. Mm. Yeah. And then when you're a kid, you don't understand things like the benefit system or stuff like that, or yeah. how to navigate. Uh, and I had to learn all that. I had to understand. God, I had to learn. It was, a, and there was no one there to teach me. And when I came back, all I had to my name mm. was two pairs of trousers, a shirt, a towel and 50 pounds. Mm. Uh, and from there, I had to start to rebuild my life. Wow. And I think the thing when I came back, a lot of my, I met up with some of my school friends and they've all gone on and they've got married or stuff like that, but they're, you know, they're, they're living their life. Yeah. And I was, and I felt like I wasn't part of that world anymore. And, and this is where I can come in and relate because I was fostered out to, into Nottingham. Right. Yeah. And I ran away so many times. I know about that. Yeah. Me too. In my foster, you know, from, you know, and in the book I talk about, I liken myself to Kunta Kinte, right? I was that runaway slave. <laughs> you know what I mean? No matter how many times they called the police to bring me back, I would run away all the time because I wasn't happy. And I wanted to get home to my mom and my sisters and my baby brother. Hmm. I wanted to get home. So here I am in Nottingham 
running away all the time from this place to that place. Until one day, I'm in Nottingham City Centre, my brother. I see the National Express bus and it says London on it. Mm. I'm like, now I'm 14. Mm. Thinking, London. So I come over to the bus driver and say, excuse me, this bus goes to London? He said, yep, every hour on the hour. I said, it goes to, to London because <laughs> I couldn't believe what he was saying. He said, yes, that's what I just said, mate. Every hour on the hour. Mate, I packed, I ran back to my foster parents, packed my bags, and I was gone. But what was what was uh, <laughs> what I can now laugh back, look back and laugh on is all these years I was running away in, in Nottingham, right? From different homes. And I could have just got on a bus <laughs> to bring me back to London. Mm. Anyway, like you, I turned back up in London. And I like you, what I can relate to is I left London when I was like nine. I had been back and forth to my to the children's homes to stay with my sisters who and my baby brother who was in the children's home at the time, Forest Road. But I had not returned back to Stoke Newington where I grew up. So here I am, 14 years old, returning back to Stoke Newington, and everything looks small. Because I don't know if you can relate to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Old, because yeah. you know when you're a kid, your mind, you remember things as a kid as yeah. Yeah, everything's massive and big. Mm, mm. The road was small. The wall I used to struggle to, to jump over, I can just flip over now. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So that's the first thing I noticed. The trees, everything was like, it was, I felt like I had never been here before. Mm. My friends had moved on. Families had gone. Mm. You know, things had changed. Mm. High street shops had changed. The mm. shop that I used to work in as a kid had gone. Mm. So I, I can relate to this whole experience of like, wow, okay, right. It's re-navigating, refine, you know what I mean? Mm. Reorientating myself with Hackney East London and London on a whole, mm. do you know? And like you having to start from scratch, but sadly my journey went down a different path because you joined the police force and I joined the street force, <laughs> you know mm. what I mean? Mm. I became one of those ragamuffin, soldiers who just mm. went out there and I caught like you like we talked about the rage the anger mm. the fear everything I took out on society you you were looking for a home for that space for that stuff exactly and it's interesting that when you were talking about running away right mm. you ran away from your foster parents to try and find your way back home mm-hmm. I ran the other way I ran away from my parents house because I wanted to go back to my foster parents yes oh uh, and I ran away so many times in fact I remember one time I ended up on a beach in Kent. Yeah. And sitting there at like midnight, sitting on this beach, thinking, I don't know where I am because I've, I've got the wrong train. Right. And then this family found me, took me back to their house. Wow. Um, called the police. You know, and it was one of those little places where they said, a black, black person here. Yeah. 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 Did you manage to find them? Like the family. Yeah. What, today? Yes. Oh, you I'm did? Not friends with yeah, I, I actually did an I mean, article. Then, sorry, back then when you went to Kent, did you manage to find them? Oh, my foster family? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, I knew where they lived. Oh, good. I just got the wrong train. How ironic, because what you're saying makes perfect sense, because mm-hmm. I remember I watched a documentary, yeah, and they talked about when a child is reared by someone who's not its mother, it will adapt that person as its mother so for example this documentary i was i was um listening to it was about south africans yeah imagine middle of apartheid you got these white south africans mm. but they were being raised by the nanny sometimes even yeah, wet yeah, yeah yeah suckle on the woman's breast mm. see that's what used to happen mm. and what happened was in this documentary it talked about um let me get my facts straight it talked about this guy was was a radio host was talking about a nanny that used to work in one of these big houses or something along them lines and 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 there was some connection about this nanny anyway a white south african called in and he says oh i want to say i'm calling in because i miss my nanny who used to look after me and he broke down on the radio show so then the host kind of went with it yeah. And he's like, tell us more about this. He said, mm. well, 
you know, even though she wasn't my birth mom, but she did all the caring, wet nursing, looking after me, taking me to school, wash me, clothe me, all of that. And I miss, I'm now a 30 year old. I've got two, three kids and I would love for my kids to see her because she is like my mother and, and they, she would be their grandmother, you know. And the grown man crying that fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guess what they did? They made a show out of it. The mm. phones went off the hook. Mm. Tons mm. of white South Africans start calling up. I miss my, my nanny too. I miss my nanny. Mm. In the end, they made a, a, a documentary of it to find the nanny of the guy who called in the first mm. place. And they went and found her and they reunited. Mm. So hearing you saying that you ran away from your biological parents to your foster parents who, was, who, had, who had taken you in from three weeks old. Mm. Two, three weeks old, yeah. And there's, you know, and this, you know, if you look at it, that's what happens in the animal kingdom. You know, yeah. animals will bond with the first being that they see. Mm. So, you know, so if, 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 I don't know, if a dog or a cat gives birth, mm-hmm. if you take it away and you keep it straight away, it will bond with you. You become its parent, dogs, stuff like that. Yeah. That, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a natural phenomenon in life, you know, whoever you bond with. There's a thing called, um, uh, I don't know if you ever came across it, attachment well, theory. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, the reason why and you spoke at the beginning of how you don't have that bond with your sisters and your siblings. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and the, the bond I have is a, it's a different bond. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not saying that you don't, yeah, you don't yeah. connect. Yeah, we have, yeah. A, we have that bond, yeah. and but I can see but, the bond they have with each other is different yeah, yeah, yeah. than the bond they have with me. Exactly, which is what I, the point I make is that my sisters have that bond with my mom. Uh, I yeah. don't have any bond with my mom, even though she's your biological mom. Even though she's, yeah, you know, she's my mother. I know oh. she's my mother. Yeah, but yeah. I don't have any real. I don't sit there and think I love her or I love. She's just my mother. Mm. It's a figure. It there is no, there is no hatred. There's no lust. There was mm-hmm. there was hatred a long time ago, but now it's just. Okay, you gave birth to me, but I don't really have a connection with you. Did you ever manage to have this kind of conversation? Did you manage to have this conversation with either your biological mum and dad about? No, not my dad. My dad wasn't that kind of person. He died in 2004. My mum is not someone who I try to have the conversation with her. Mm -hmm. But my mum has two ways of looking at the world. Mm. Her way and everybody else's wrong way. Wow. Yeah. So if you don't see it her way, you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So whatever you say to, I mean, I'll give you an example. Yeah. When I was a kid, there was a time I tried to commit suicide. Mm. Right. Wow. And um, I swallowed a whole bottle of Panadol mm-hmm. and a bottle of vodka. And I was about 15. And the only thing it did, it made me vomit in school assembly. But I was rushed to hospital. Mm. Uh, and then they got my, my mom turned up at the hospital. Mm-hmm. And because of the because of social services and everything, mm-hmm. she wasn't allowed to visit me on her own. So there was a nurse standing by the bed, right? And my mom came in, and this is what she said: oh. "If you want to commit suicide, tell me next time, and I'll show you how to do it properly." Oh, right. Oh, yeah. Now, years later, Jesus. I said to her, "I remember. I remember the look. I remember the look on the nurse's face, mm. right." Years later, I was, t- I was telling her, I said, this is what you said. She goes, I never said that. She goes, I would never say anything like that. And I said, you did. She goes, no, 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 I would never I say anything like that. Then um, I got hold of my social work records. I did a freedom of information request. Mm-hmm. Right? In the notes was that incident. And her word. In the notes was the notes that the nurse had written. Brilliant. Was there. Brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant. And it was sad that I had to prove it to her. Mm. And what did she say? When did she? No, she she doesn't she doesn't respond. My mom, if you prove her wrong, she doesn't respond. No. So I I I haven't. It's not a conversation like this conversation that I can have with my mom, because she's she's not on that level. I remember my early days of when I um got into recovery, turned my life around and started looking mm. at and become and living in the solution rather than the problem. Yeah. 
one of the things I did was I wrote, I was in, I was in therapy early days and um, my therapist at the time said to me, write a letter Ooh. as if you're not gonna send it, right? To your mum. Because mm. he said, look, you're angry with your mum. Them time I was in my book, I was like, no, nah, but I'm angry with my dad. She's like, no, mm. you're angry with your mum. Yeah. But no, nah, but my dad, he's the one, you know, yeah, yeah. you're also angry with your mum. She mm. said, when you're ready, you're gonna see that. And then sure yeah. enough, they yeah. came. She said, right, you're now ready to look at your mum. I'm like, all right. She said, write a letter to your mum. Yeah. If you wasn't gonna send it. Mm. So I wrote this letter. And I'm, I, you know, sadly, again, as much said, my mum was full-blown schizophrenic. So I wrote all, you know, I mean, rah, just went onto the page. Why did you have a breakdown? Why us? Why did we have to be moved from tunes onto, you know, and all this stuff? And then normally what would happen is you put it in the letterbox, but with no address, or you burn it. But me being me, I thought, you know what? Let me just leave it on mum's side table. Yeah. <laughs> and I left it on her side table, right? I'm not expecting her to read it because she, she wasn't well. Anyway, fast forward to tape, about a week or so later, after I left the letter, serendipity or however you want to call it, I'm, at the time I was working for social services, doing meals on wheels and delivering food for the elderly and kids or something like this. Anyway, I, 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 I'm, I'm on my lunch break. I pull up in London Fields and I've gone to cut across the park to go to the shops or wherever I'm going. And I bump into my mum because she lives London Fields and she always frequents the park. Normally when I bumped in my mum, because again, she's not well, she'd be like, I want to, you know, I'll be a, hey mum, move yourself, blah, blah, blah. And she'll, you know, blah, blah, blah. She's trying to do this, this massive psychotic tantrum, you know, because she's not well. On this occasion, I'm like, hey mum. She's gone, hey Stan, I got your letter. Thanks for your letter. And I'm like, uh, oh, Oh, you read it? Yeah, I read it. She said, it's okay. You did the best. She starts tapping me on my shoulder and my back. She said, it's okay, son. You did your best. Mm. It's okay. I'm sorry that things didn't work out the way you, you wanted to, but you've done you've done your best by the family. And I tell, I, I tell you something, G, I broke down. Yeah, I can imagine. I broke that. down. And even now talking about it, it gives me goosebumps. Yeah. I broke down because here is a woman who is not well, who is schizophrenic, yeah. And for whatever reason, she had this, this moment of clarity. She read my letter. Yeah. She's apologizing, bless, mm. and acknowledging what I've tried to do for our family when I tried to get us all back together, mm. get everyone out of the children's homes and whatnot, which I did to my own detriment because I took on way too much than I could chew. Mm. And here was my mom acknowledging what had happened. I'm crying my eyes out. She's patting me on the back and she's going, it's okay, son, don't cry. It's okay, dry your eyes. It's okay, don't cry. And then when I'm done, she, she get up and she's gone to move. And I'm like, okay, thanks, mum. She's like, move yourself. Blah, 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 blah. Don't yeah, yeah. I'm gone yeah. back. The moment's <laughs> gone, yeah. The moment went. Yeah. And I sat on that park bench and I don't know if you can relate to this, you know, because I, I, I like to swim and whatnot. I don't know if you, you know when you get water in your ears, you don't realise you've got water in your ears until maybe a week later and when your ears pop, pop. you can hear. Mm -hmm. When I sat on that park bench, it was as if my ears had just popped and I could just hear the birds a little bit more clear. Mm. So yeah. going back yeah. to what how we talked yeah. about this conversation, yeah. that rage, that anger, yeah. that resentment that I carried yeah. had yeah. been lifted. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because I had my mum on a pedal stool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, well, it's not her fault she got schizophrenia. Yeah. It's not her fault that she beat the living crap out of me and my siblings and treated mm. us like, you know what I mean? Whatever. Mm. But yeah, you know, so powerful that, you know, we've 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 had these similar experiences. And I wrote a letter to my mom. Oh, come on now. Right. Come on. Because, one of the things I did, or what mm -hmm. I still do occasionally, I do silent retreats. Yes, I know about the silent retreat. Yeah. So <laughs> I do it, and it, I normally do about 10 days of silence. So you do Vipassana? No, no, not that one. No, no, no. I just go to this monastery in South Wales. Oh, good for yeah. you. And on Vipassana, one of them... Vipassana do the 10-day... Yeah, yeah, no, I've heard of those ones. Yeah, yeah, I've seen the film. 
There's a documentary about it as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Right, go on. Yeah. Um, the Dharma Brothers, that's the name of the documentary. Uh-huh. Anyway, so, no, on this one, um, I woke up in the middle of the night one day mm-hmm. and this voice just told me, you need to write a letter to your mom. Wow. Right? And I woke up and I started writing it. It started off with, and I'll just tell you, I won't tell you the rest of it, but I just said this part. So I had a dream. Mm. This is to my mom. I had a dream that you had died and gone to heaven. Mm. And when you got to the gates of heaven, the keeper of the gate looked down, saw your name, and said, Ah, Mrs. Tarawa, mm. you are going to hell. Mm. And she goes, why am I going to hell? And I said, because you failed the test that we gave you. Mm. And she's like, what test? I said, we gave you a gay son. Mm. And she says, yes. And I told him it was wrong to be gay. I told him he should change his way. I told him this. And, I thought, and then they said, yes, that's why you failed the test. We mm. gave you a gay son to test your capacity to love. Mm. You chose to judge. Mm. Therefore, you have failed the test. You are going to hell. Wow. Wow. That's how the letter started. Did you send that letter to her? I posted it to her. Until today, (laughs) she has never acknowledged that letter. Mm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Never acknowledged receiving it, never said anything about it. Wow. Are you in each other's lives? Kind of. Kind of. Wow. Yeah, you know, um, my mom and my sister live together. Mm-hmm. So when I go and see my sister, my mom's there. And then, but, but there's been times I've been to see my sister. My mom would be upstairs in the bedroom, and the whole time I'm there, mm. I'll never, I won't even go up and say hello. Wow. I could be in that house for the whole day. Mm. And I just say, tell mom I said hi, and then I'll go. Mm. Mm. That's that's powerful. Mm. Wow. That but is then the thing, the thing, the thing, the thing for this for me, Stanley, is this is the way wow. I look at life now. We, you know, we we've got a lot of the story, mm-hmm. and you know, and and a lot of your experiences now. But the thing I look at, I don't know if you have the same thing. Mm. I look at life as a book. Yes. Funny enough, you've written a book. Yes. Right? And you're, I, you're about to write a book, yeah? I'm about to write a book. And right. I look now I look at every experience mm-hmm. as a chapter. Yes, yes. In that book. Yes. Anything you're going through, whether good or bad, mm-hmm. it's just a chapter. Absolutely. It's not the whole book. It's not the whole book. I totally, 100% agree. Mm-hmm. And, brother, you know what? I'm going to give you a hug. Here we go. We're giving you, I'm giving you a virtual hug. A virtual hug. Got it. Received it. Because you know what? Ah, uh, life is what happens to us while we're busy making other plans. There you go. That's the quote. That's the quote. And yeah. what I said to Brother Ben on episode three was, I'm not responsible for what happens to me as a child. Yeah. Mm. All that happened to me as a not my responsibility. But mm. I am responsible for what happens to me as an adult. Mm. So it's down to me now to take that responsibility to address, do you know what I mean? To put, mm. put it put the balance right, you know? Mm. And we've both gone through some stuff and some more, yet we've managed to come out the other side, that you joining the Metropolitan Police Force, mm. the first black gay officer to come out as well, Man, that must have been a powerful experience. Yeah. But then that's that's the whole thing, isn't it? It's about each chapter. Mm. The thing about each chapter is what, what when I one of the beauties I have about the film I released, mm. right, is that it gives people permission to talk. Mm. And from what you've said, your book does the same thing. Yes. Right. And to me, that's that's how you help people to get through it. People need to see that you can survive. Yes. Right? Yes. And, and when I first met you, one of the first things I said, I don't know if you remember, I said, we need to share more of our stories. Yes, I do. Remember as as you know, our generation, as, especially as black men. Yes. Yes. We yes. need to share more of our stories because there's a lot of people out there that need 
to hear these stories mm-hmm. so that they can hear themselves mm-hmm. yeah. and give them hope to say it's okay you can get through this you can rise above this you can let go of the anger you can Absolutely. let go of the pain Absolutely. you can let go and you know and i look at all those things and i say all those negative experiences are like chisels mm. and what they're doing they're carving out your beauty yes yes and they're painful at the time totally totally but what they create is something beautiful love the glasses by the way thank you my brother me too they were my old ray-ban sunglasses and yeah. you know do you remember now you know we get older now you need a little help so i thought rather than throw these away let me just use the frames <laughs> they look cool they look cool <laughs> thank they you, make you look cool as well yeah thank you mate thank you mm. I'm going to read a little something from the book, if that's yeah, okay. Yeah, please do. It's actually in the prologue, and it kind of summarises me and you, mm. and um, Brother Ben, and, um, you know, it's, it's just powerful, you know, mm. in the sense of, I am a soldier. I am dressed in green military fatigues, and a gold dog tag swings from my neck. I have an audience held captive within the four walls of this theater. And I tell them, I tell them everything. This proud accomplished general has worked his way up through the ranks. Whatever was needed, I did it. Whatever it took to be seen, to be feared, to be recognized, I acted on it. I had no boundaries when it came to war. I'm 40 years old. I still don't know how I made it this age to this age. From a young boy, I've known nothing but battles. The scars are largely hidden now, but I am well-versed in disaster. Mm. I've run headlong into adventure. I've been lost over and over, enslaved by my past, but Mm. somehow I've always found freedom. Mm. I lower my head and slowly look across the auditorium. All I can hear now is the faint white noise of the aircon. I hold out my forearms and surrender. I am playing the part well. It's the part I've rehearsed all my life. Othello is about to become undone. An anxious pause before the lights illuminate the room. I stand smiling and I bow to 300 faces. 300 pairs of hands are clapping. There are whoops and whistles. I feel overwhelmed and my chest swelled with pride. But I know that backstage, when I sit in front of the mirror and I wipe the makeup from my cheeks, I will remind myself that this is not my story, that I will not be applauded for mine, that I died before I ever lived. Still, at my core, I am rock solid. I am that general that Othello used to be. I am a soldier. and. You know, just sharing that with you and hearing you share your journey, I can relate to the soldier that is within us both. Mm. You know, Ronnie Archer Morgan, soldier. Do you know what I mean? Mike McKenzie, who you actually know, because we had a little chat, mm. you know, the, the foster carer that was on with me, a soldier. You know, Ben Ashcroft, soldier. We, that, you know, and when I say soldier, I don't mean that, battling soldier on the on the on the on the field of war whatever but the soldier within our souls to be able to rise above adversity and keep going no matter what and waking up to write that next chapter can i say something yes Um, i i I, the more i do this work Mm -hmm. and the more people like yourself that i meet Mm -hmm. there is a, a phrase, uh, something that always resonates in my head is that there is your story, there is my story, mm-hmm. but more importantly, there's our story. Yes, yes. And it's it's recognising that we all, and you said this at the beginning, and that's that's one of the biggest things, I've, we all have a story. Yeah, yeah but we don't all have the courage to share that story. Absolutely. And doing what we're doing here, and this is why I'm really grateful to be doing this podcast and having this conversation. Mm. I know we, we kind of run out of time. We're about to wrap up shortly. Oh. Um, I think we've got a few minutes left or whatever, but 
the point of all of this is to allow others, and you've asked me, what do we hope to get from this? For me, it's about allowing others to hear that they're not alone. Yeah. They are not alone. Yeah. The journey continues. They are not alone. Do you know Speak what I mean? The truth and the truth will set you free. Exactly. And giving them permission, you know, to share their story or embrace their story, to yeah. acknowledge their story. Yeah. And there's a lovely um, Nelson Mandela's inaugural speech, yeah, which was written by a woman by them. By Marianne Williamson. Marianne Williamson. Thank you. Touch me. Now. <laughs> That's why I knew. Our greatest fear. Our deepest fear. Mm. is not that we are inadequate. We are inadequate. Our deepest fear, fear is that we are powerful, we are powerful beyond measure. It is our yeah. light, not, not our, our light. darkness, yes. which most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am who I, am I? gorgeous, talented and fabulous? Who Actually, are you not to be? Who are you not to be? Powerful. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Powerful. And um, I'm a singer-songwriter as well and I actually use those lyrics. And, and, and I, because I play acoustic guitar and, and made this song out of those lyrics, just like Uncle Bob Marley did with Hal Selassie's speech. I used to play football with Bob Marley. What? You used to play football with Uncle Bob? Yeah. No way. Tell me a little bit about that before we have to sign up. Come on, we got time. He, he, lived, he lived in Neasden. Right. Which was just around the corner from where we lived in Halsden. And he used to come to the park. But, you know, the thing is, I say I play football, I was too young to appreciate the magnitude of who he was. Right, wow. We just knew him as Rasta Bob, who used to come and play football with us. And then occasionally they'd just sit down and start talking to us about life. But we're kids. We didn't understand what he was saying back then. I'm jealous. <laughs> because in my book, I talk about, for me, Uncle Bob was like my guardian angel. Yeah. And every time I got moved from home to home, the uncanniest thing will happen again, serendipity or whatever you want to call it. I would hear Uncle Bob being played on the radio or on this, whatever little moments, which will tell me that everything's going to be all right. Mm. I'm on the right road that he's still with me. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Because my book talks about them early years. And when I was with some Rastafarian community and how they were my tribe and, you know, a whole journey. So when I got taken away and, and, and fostered out, every time I heard Uncle Bob, I was like, okay, the Rasta people, they, my, they, they're still with me. My community is still with me. Do you know what I mean? Um, wow. What a conversation, Brother G. Yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. You know, and I knew it would be. That's why I was like, no, we're going to have to get G. We have to get G. And that's why mm. I was so, you know, look, man, um, definitely I want to do this again with you. Definitely, and what you know, me and you two, we're going to keep in touch. We're going to, you know, what I mean, work together and whatever. I'm here, man. Um, and it'd be nice to, you know, yeah, because I wanted to hear more about how it was for you as well, being a black police officer mm. in that regime. Do you know what I mean? And how you coped, mm. you know. So that would be nice to hear as well. Um, but nice just for sharing your own story with me and your own journey going through the foster caring system and whatnot totally can relate to tons of stuff what you share man um how do you feel now oh this was a complete waste of time <laughs> <laughs> i can send for you man i picked i picked up your sense of humor from the time we met right and i was like right you got one of those sense of humor all right yeah. brother <laughs> no it was good it's 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 good to have these conversations and mm. and you know, I somebody always said that when you have conversation like this, try and imagine who you want them to hear, who you want to hear them. Mm. To me, it's that little kid lived, lived living in a house or in a space where they feel afraid. Mm. And I hope that it gives them courage. Yeah. Yeah. And confidence and hope for a better future. Absolutely. You know, and mm. I can second all of that, what you said. Mm. Um, you know what? <sighs> I have an attitude of gratitude. I, I feel blessed to have bumped into you and that we connected and I'm glad we do was like, yeah, let's swap numbers. We just knew instinctively. Mm. And strange, I feel like I've known you a long time. You know, same thing it's happened with stories. Archer. Same thing happened with Ronnie Archer when I met him. We, it, it's like this, we just connected. And I, and I think it's to do with 
because we've gone through some stuff and some more, we recognize each other. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's the only thing I can put it down to. But, um, you know, I feel really just having this conversation with you, I feel strangely uplifted. I feel there's a, there's a, there's a healing that's taken place between us that I'm hoping anyone listening to this would also take that healing on board as well. Do you know what it's I mean? Called, it's called geology. All right, geology. Bring, yeah, bring you've, had, you've had a dose of geology. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully we can share that, that dose of geology. <laughs> the ripple in the pond effect, isn't it? Yeah. We, we drop yeah. it in thank the you, pond. man. Thank you. Yeah. But thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. And let's keep in touch. Yeah, thank you. Thank Good you. Luck. And yeah, likewise, brother. Speak soon. This has been How Do You Feel Now with me, Stanley J. Brown. How Do You Feel Now is a production by Jacaranda Books, publishers of my recently released memoir, Little Big Man, and is available in all major bookstores and online platforms where you can get your podcasts.